Uh, I'm David Weinberger. Um, this is at Harvard Law because I have the great luck to be a fellow at the Berkman Center, um, which is part of Harvard Law, although it's becoming part of Harvard in general. So here's my plan. Thank you very much for coming, by the way. I'm really glad you're, you're here. Um, I have a presentation. The presentation has grown and grown and grown to how many slides, Betsy? What are we up to? It's 1,079. Jeez. It just seemed like 4,000. <laughs> um, and that's because this is a new presentation with if elements of uh, old presentations. Uh, so some of it may be familiar. And I, I, I actually want to go through the presentation because I haven't done this before. And I would really appreciate any form of um, comments, feedback, and so forth, not just on the, the content, which would be wonderful, and, but also on the form as a presentation, which parts go on too long. For example, this part. Um, and after this, I'm sure hoping there's going to be lots of time to talk, but then there's also a, uh, a party, you know, I mean, sort of wine and beer and cheese. Um, over at the Berkman Center, which is just a short block away. And so you can just follow. A short block away, I'm being told, this way. Um, and there will be a number of us going over. So, Okay, so um, this book is uh, called Everything is Miscellaneous. It is published tomorrow by Times Books. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm going I'm to be quite unprofessional. I'm not totally uh, familiar with these slides. I'm going to keep looking at it. What's this one? Oh, yeah. So the overall idea of the book is that we're, we're really a well-organized species. We, we, whatever domain, whether it's an org chart for business or something else, we like to organize things really neatly. Um, and we almost always, whether it's a kitchen, which that previous photo was of, or it's a, it's a library, we almost always have some stuff that doesn't fit in. And so we make a thing called the miscellaneous drawer or category. Um, and if it gets too big, then your organization failed. And what I want to suggest in the book and here is that actually as we digitize everything, the miscellaneous category is going to eat the entire chart. And that's a good thing. It's good for business. It's good for science. It's good for education. It's good for politics. In general, it's a really, really good thing, although it's quite counterintuitive. So this is a, a, a playlist. As you know, a playlist is a really small thing. It's a really simple thing, but it lets us take as many cuts through our music as we want. Multiple simultaneous ways of organizing. We don't have to argue with our spouse about how to organize our playlist the way we have to or argue about how we're going to organize the physical CDs. So this is a little thing that we're totally used to, but it's actually a very big deal when you just think about the contrast to what we have to go through in order to organize physical stuff, where one person gets to make up the org make up the, the way of arranging it. A single person reflecting his or her way of thinking. And we manage because we're really good at this and we've had a couple thousand years to figure it out. But still, one person, one way. It's incredibly limiting. And this is because this is baked right into reality. I mean, it's the, it seems like the very nature and purpose of reality is to keep things apart, to make sure that, you know, the two basic rules that you follow, no matter what you're organizing in the real world for thousands of years as we've organized stuff, we've had to obey the two basic principles of reality, which is you cannot have two things in the same spot at the same time, no matter how hard you try. <laughs> it's the first rule. And the second rule is everything has to be somewhere. Everything has to be in a place. And we try to make sure, in every domain, whether it's uh, in the commercial realm, whether it's in education, if it's in science and how we organize species and the physical objects in museums. This, by the way, is the Harvard, uh, Harvard Natural History Museum. Um, in every domain, everything has to go somewhere. So two basic principles ba baked into reality, which have some political consequences. It results instantly in an authority coming forward because somebody has to decide what's going to make it onto the front page and what the order of it is going to be. And generally, we make good decisions about this. But, not even, but even when we make good decisions, as generally we do, nevertheless, it's a single person's decision or a single group's decision, the editorial board, coming up with a single way of doing it that's supposed to reflect all interests or at least reflect our best interests as if there were such a thing. That's true whether it's a new, uh, anything physical, if it's a newspaper, if it's an encyclopedia that tries to fit all of our knowledge into 32, vo 32 volumes and 65,000 topics, as in the uh, Britannica, where somebody 
complex process, but some set of people decides this is what's important and this is how we're going to organize it, the single way. We categorize all the time. It determines who gets into which college, who gets, in, gets into tournaments or into the Olympics. This is a question of categorization. It determines who gets to be in the presidential debates. That's really scary, by the way. I'm, um, it determines who gets to see which movies. This was unbelievably, this was an X-rated movie. If you remember this movie from 1960 or 68 or 70, whenever it was, this was an X-rated movie. Um, it determines how we break up our work processes what in business, or in this case, the DARPA assembling a table, what are the discrete elements and how are they to be arranged? It determines how we present our, our stuff, whether it's physical or online, what, what's the organizing principles by which we're going to allow other people to find and buy our stuff. A single way of doing it, made by a single group. We, we use it to categorize our, our customers themselves. We have first class, and we have economy class, and we have, I'm not sure what that, but it's, you know, um, and then we use it for very serious purposes as well. Uh, the many years of apartheid, they, were, they developed a book 50 pages long of racial types, including honorary whites. And much of your life was determined by where you fit into this, into this racial system. And it was subject to change. There's a famous story, true story, of a guy who was reclassified racially. His race changed five times in the course of apartheid and at least once requiring him to leave his wife and family. This is the American Psychiatric Association in 1972 when John Fryer gave a talk dressed in a, in a wig, a mask, padded up with clothing and using a voice changer to hide his voice because he was, he was gay. And being homose homosexuality was classified as a disease and you could not be a homosexual psychiatrist because you, couldn't, you were diseased, you were ill. Um, one of the talks given it at the next APA was uh, um, by a, a gay guy whose title of the talk was, You're Making Me Sick. And he meant it entirely literally. And when the APA changed the classification, he was no longer sick. And now he could be a functioning, he could be a psychiatrist again. So this stuff matters. How we classify matters. It matters, it goes fairly deep, too. This, this is, uh, Plato said a long time ago, that... A, the wise thing to do is to carve nature at its joints. When you're trying to figure out how the world, what the world is and how it works, you should carve at the joints. And what he has in mind is basically butchering an animal. I just like it because of the cannibalistic <laughs> cow. And there are places where it's really hard to hack through, and that's bad, don't do that, and places where there are joints, so you hack there. And that's how nature is. And that's what we've assumed. That, that says there is a single order. There's a set of joints that you can carve through right or wrong. Or you can carve through or you can go wrong and, and butcher nature. And we've had this assumption for a long time. And in its most extreme forms, it seems rather quaint. But it's actually not all that quaint. It's very contemporary. We still believe this uh, with some degree of depth and fervor, as we saw last summer when the International Astronomical Union decided that, they needed, that we needed a definition <coughs> of planets. We did not have there was no definition of planet. There was none. And so they decided, they set up a committee that worked for years and went through some really bizarre political processes as well, with people, uh, alliances and the like, until they finally had a, a vote, a majority vote in Prague last year to decide what is a planet, a question forced upon the astronomers by the discovery of lots and lots, thousands, millions of things, billions of things that circle the sun. And some of them are the size of dust, and some of them are the size of, of planets. And so we better figure out why, what a planet is so we can figure out what we're... So they went through a process, and they came up with a two-part definition. The first part is uh, that a planet is something that's large enough that it rounds itself, has enough mass that gravity causes it to form a, a sphere, because gravity will do that. And the second is that it has to clear its, it, the space around it. Why those two characteristics? It's very simple. It's because those two characteristics give us nine, well, eight of the planets back. There's nothing interesting about those characteristics. Clearing its own space, that's just the bizarre one intended to get, um, to get rid of large objects that, that don't. So no science, by the way. There's no science involved in this question of what is a planet. In fact, they did it, um, if I, I spoke with some of the people on the committee, and they did it because they did not want to be in the position of saying there is no such thing as a planet, because they would be laughed at. 
the culture would laugh at them. What do you mean, stupid scientists? They don't even know what a planet is. The thing is the size of a planet, and they can't find it. That, you know, they want to get that joke. So, so they had to come up with something. The New York Times that summer actually had an editorial about this. Room up front, Steve. <laughs> um, about this very topic in which they said, let's keep it to nine. Why? Think about the children. Won't somebody think of the children? We don't want them having to memorize thousands of planets. It's just unfair. And one of the, one of the scientists that I spoke with who were on the committee said, come on, you know, how many mountains are there? Mountains are real things, but it's not like we have to keep nine mountains so the kids can memorize all of them. We're perfectly happy having you know, as many mountains as we find. We should do the same thing with planets. And the actual, I think, right answer to this, and this uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's an astrophysicist and at the Museum of Natural History, okay, um, who has a new book out, Death by Black Hole. Actually, a very good book. Um, he, he says, and I think, he, I think he, he makes a lot of sense on this, that no, planets are the, one of the least interesting ways of classifying the objects that circle the sun. There's lots and lots of ways of classifying that's in, that are interesting. For example, objects that have atmospheres. That's really interesting. And there are four of them. And one of them is a planet. It's Titan. That's an interesting classification. Or uh, icy objects, objects with water. That's really interesting, because there's more to know there, but just the fact that you're big enough to be around, it's totally boring. <laughs> Nothing follows from it. Yet we insist. We insist because we want there to be order. We want, it's just deep in us, we want there to be a single order. Science does much better if it doesn't have a single order, if it's able to slice through all of the objects circling the sun and all the other objects according to criteria and attributes that actually matter. So suppose the universe does... Oh, I should tell you, this talk is in four parts. When I get to the end of the third, you're going to think I'm done because I begin with the word so, but I'm not. Okay, so that's not here. We've got a long way to go. So the universe looks like this, perhaps. Well, it used to look like this. Suppose the universe actually looks like this, where it's all joints. It's almost all joints. So you can carve in any direction you want. Now, it's almost all joints. Umberto Eco, the novelist, who is also actually an academic philosopher of some note, says, you know, basically this, it's all joints except that there are some cuts that aren't possible. There's no, nobody serves snout tail. <laughs> but generally, there are so many ways of carving it up that, that it, it's ridiculous to think that there's just this one map of, of doing it. So we categorize. But it turns out that categorizing is, is just bringing things together that are alike, putting them next to each other, either physically or mentally. But we get to choose what makes them alike. So we can say we're gonna, we can do them any way we want, whatever matters to us, whatever is interesting to us or useful to us. So this works because there are, in fact, things in the, the universe consists of things that have attributes, and those attributes tend to cluster. They come in clusters. So that something that is, uh, looks like this and smells like this and feels like this probably also tastes like it. Those attributes go together, although occasionally you get a mouthful of wax fruit. But generally, these things actually do go together. That's just the way the universe is. Lots and lots of attributes, lots and lots of clusters, more than we can count. So we, and we can go up a level. We can say, okay, well, these things are alike in some way as well, and different likeness than here, but they're alike. They have some commonality, so we'll call them, uh, we'll cluster those together, and we can keep going. Or we can keep going all the way down, and we can keep going all the way up as well, finding these things that are alike and clustering them in a very neat and orderly way, and we've really liked this way of doing it. We've liked these trees where everything has a place, has a single place where there's one order that's right and everything has a place in it. Well, this is exactly what, how the real world works. Since Aristotle, the way that we've defined um, what a category is, we say, well, there's got to be a knowable definition. And that's one of the things I think I'm not going to talk about tonight, but that's one of the important things that's also being shaken up by what's happening. The idea that categories are formed by well-ordered, precise, knowable definitions. But we've, we've labored under this idea for 2,500 years, that a proper order is tree-like, everything has its place, and the place is determined by a chisel, by a knife edge of definition. We like this form of classification <laughs> a lot. It's extremely handy. You know where everything is, and you know how, how, 
what it is in relation in a single dimension to everything else. But, and this is, I think, the key point about this form of organization, it's based upon the limitations of the physical. These trees that we use for organizing, or any form of, of organization of ideas that says things have a single place, result from the same principles that we use for sorting our physical laundry. So when, we put, when we're putting away our clean laundry, we make piles. We lump and we split. We put things into piles, and we get it very neat. It's very nice, and you get something new. You have to pick up the new pair of socks, and you've got to figure, which pile of socks is this going into? And normally, it's not much of a problem, but you might wonder, should it go into the formal, the informal, the sportswear, the stuff to give away, the winter stuff, the summer stuff? You can make up your own piles, but it's got to go in one, one pile because that's the way atoms work. You cannot put it into two piles. And so you do. And as a result, we end up, if you, if you mapped this, you would end up with a tree. You just went through a tree structure in which you started off with a big lump of laundry and you divided it by person and you divided person by, usually by body part. I mean, you can do it any way you want, but generally this is what we do. And then, uh, you know, different categories. <laughs> and we, in making these decisions, these binary decisions, we are creating a tree. And the trees that we create, the guide thought, that for us have been the pinnacle of how, we, how the world is ordered and how we or organize our ideas, is constrained by the same limitations that we've had in sorting our laundry. And that's a limitation that we no longer need. This is, we've, we've had this limitation. We've accepted it. Because the means by which we organize, preserve, communicate information, ideas, and knowledge have themselves been physical. It's been books and pieces of paper, stuff like that. This, we need this stuff in order to externalize what we know and, and, and grow past where our little brains can remember. We've got to do this stuff, and we've, but we've been stuck with the physical. And when you're organizing the physical, you are stuck organizing it the way that you do your laundry. Here's where it fits. Here's the shelf it goes on. And although we allow a type of hyperlinking between books through footnotes and references and the like, it's the world's worst hyperlinking system. It's, it's pathetic. You come across a footnote here, and you're in the Widener Library in particular. Widener is way worse than this. Widener, you're probably going to have to go up, across, crawl through a tunnel, come back down, <laughs> go up, down the fire escape, and crawl in through a window to get to over here. And then the book's out. This is a terrible, terrible way of organizing information. It's just the best that we've had. So our, our, our way of, of thinking about how ideas go together has been limited by the physical that has stuck, stuck us. And if you want to see this at its most easily poke funnable, it's the Dewey Decimal System. Now, I've actually sort of, this is like, it's just too easy. And so I feel a little bad doing it, but I'm going to. Melville Dewey, 1876. He's 21 years old. He, he's a punk at a, at a tiny Orthodox college with books I just found out from Ethan Zuckerman that were stolen, it, it's, uh, um, were stolen from Williamstown College. Uh, <clears throat> he's extremely rational. He's so rational that he's also a spelling simplificationist and a metric guy. So he simplifies his name to Dewey. Melville was also shortened. He went back to the full spelling when he became the first librarian at Columbia. This is a guy who's so rational that he's insane. He, um, the, the simplest story, I guess, is that he liked to travel. When possible, he would arrange travel so that he would arrive on the day of the week that ended in a zero. This is, he, he is, he's nuts. <laughs> Nevertheless, he comes up with a pretty good system that's worked for, our, for over 100 years and is used in 90% of U.S. public schools, for example, and around the world. And the way that it works is he really liked, dec he really liked decimals. He loved decimals in an unnatural way. So he says, uh, we'll divide up the books and the knowledge in the books into 10 categories, and then each of those into 10 categories, and each of those into 10 categories, and we'll have 1,000 integers, and we'll allow for infinite... Um, specialization down here by using uh, fractions, you know, sub-integers. Well, this is sort of a nutty idea. Um, it, it works. It has many benefits. It's, you, can, you can browse and find things. But the notion that everything has to be in tens is just bizarre, which you can see if you think for uh, how you might use Dewey to organize, say, your kitchen. Where you, you have a new kitchen, you're going to build, so you say, I like decimals. I'm going to put in my kitchen 10 cabinets. Each will have 10 shelves, and each shelf will have 10 spots. And each of those units of 10 will have its own category. 
So I'm going to, it's not too hard to come up with 10 top levels, but by the time you get down to the sort of the spice rack and you have to get 10 spices in there, not 8, not 11, and you only have 8 and you have to think, well, I'll make the chocolate sprinkles, chocolate shot, that counts as, I'm going to count that as a spice because I need 10. <laughs> Lemonade, it's a spice. You need 10. <laughs> this is an idea that does not work well towards rationality because the universe is not laid out in 10s. Our fingers are, but the universe isn't. You can see this really easy. Uh, so the other point is that if you do this, it inevitably is going to express your own interests, your own way. And if you're a 21-year-old kid who just graduated from an Orthodox Christian school, you are going to have pretty uh, provincial, because that's his environment and his upbringing, pretty provincial um, interests. So his, your way of dividing inevitably is going to reflect that. So in the 100s, where there's only, a, you know, there's only 100 numbers to play with, this is, hundreds are, are uh, philosophy and psychology. It's parapsychology, dreams and mystery, it's divinatory graphology, which is handwriting analysis or predicting the future by hand, and phrenology. So these are all integer numbers in, in Dewey because that's what made sense. That's what he was interested in. That's what made sense to him. Um, the most famous and uh, I think most dramatic example is in religion where yeah, t Judaism gets its own integer. Yeah, go Jews. Islam gets sort of its own. It gets its own plus the other religions that came out uh, of it. Currently, it's been revised now, so 297 is Islam, Babism, and Baha'i. Well, a lot of Muslims consider Baha'i to be a, um, the Scientology of religion. I mean, they consider it to be a Johnny-come-lately, uh, not a real religion. This is a matter of some controversy. And also, 295, Zoroasterism gets its own, its own integer. But where is Buddhism? It doesn't. It's, it's all the way to the right of the decimal point. It has to reflect. So the point is not, um, well, we could fix this. We should, we should promote Buddhism up to its own number, which you know, you know, I think there's a reasonable argument, um, but it's, it wouldn't, wouldn't work. You cannot drive all of the bugs out of the system, no matter how many librarians you send out with razor blades to scrape off the white ink on the sides of the books, because whatever system you come up with is going to reflect somebody's view of the world. So, okay, Buddhism, that's a world religion of some, so let's put it up. But meanwhile, you're going to have all the arguments that we currently have, the Sunnis and the Shiites arguing over who, what level they should be on, and should Baha'i be at their same level. You're going to have the gender issues. You're going to have all of the issues we've ever had because we don't agree about how to divide up the world. We just don't, and we can't, and we won't ever. It's not possible. We can't. We have a lot of experience with this now. We're not going to agree. A lot of this goes back to the role of paper. It's really just to the physical nature of paper. So it's the 300th birthday this year of Linnaeus, the great classifier who gave us the scientific taxonomies and also gave us in, 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 uh, in um, uh, 20 questions the animal, vegetable, mineral beginning. He divided the world up that way. If you go to his, uh, the Linnaean headquarters in, in London, you go into like a bomb, literally a bomb shelter where they have his stuff that was... Uh, brought over, and this is the first edition of his big book, and it is a big book, it's, you know, it's coffee table size, of everything. This is a system of nature, it's everything, and each page is a two-page uh, spread, animals, vegetables, minerals, kingdoms, because he thought about these things politically, quite explicitly, uh, which is a really interesting connection. So he's divided them all up, and uh, everything is subdivided, subdivided, subdivided. Um, why? Well, he, he kept index cards. These are now like floppy rags, but he had, he, every species gets its own card. And when you have your species written down on a card, what do you do when it com comes time to, to arrange them? You lay them out. You deal them out. And if you deal them out, of course you're going to end up clustering them and having a system that looked like his. It's exactly the same thing with Mendeleev, who in 1862-ish created the periodic table of the elements. And he did it by playing chemical solitaire. That's what he called it. Every element, every known element, had its own index card, and he laid them out in a grid. And he came up with a grid that's extraordinarily useful. Nevertheless, of course you're going to try to come up with the single way of organizing stuff where everything has its place, because every card has to go somewhere. And it's probably going to look pretty grid-like. certainly going to be orderly. It's going to be two, fit in a two-dimensional space, and preferably, I mean, Linnaeus really went as far as he could. Uh, you have about this much room to do it in if you're willing to have an oversized book. That's about the size of it. It's got to fit in something this big. 
because that's the way paper works. That's the way publishing works. Mendeleev's way of organizing actually is very rich because there are the, the position in the organization actually gives you more information about the thing. And that's a sign that the classification is doing something right and real with the attributes of the things, as opposed to being a merely arbitrary alphabetical. You know, if, if you arrange them alphabetically, the elements, you wouldn't derive anything from the layout. Because he didn't, he actually was able to derive new information um, from, the, from the arrangement. Okay, so now we're digitizing everything, and that changes everything. So I think it's useful to think about there being three orders of order. In the first order, this is the, this is the uh, Bettman archive. Um, 11 million photos, or historic photos, most important archive of, of historic photos in the U.S. It's buried 220 feet below ground, thanks to Bill Gates, who bought it to preserve it. Uh, it's in a, in a limestone quarry, being kept nice and cool. In the first order, you organize the physical things themselves. You just put them in shelves. You put them in folders. And you come up with some order of doing that. The Dewey Decimal System is, for example, one very good order for books. In the second order, you come out of the airlock at the Bettman because they're dropping the temperature of the inner chamber, and you get the second order where you separate the metadata about the things, the information about the stuff, and you arrange it separately, which has tremendous advantages, which is why we do it. It's a very familiar sort of arrangement. So you make these file cards. You greatly reduce the information down to what fits on a 3 by 5 card, which, you know, think about a big book, Reduced to this, but still, you get the most important information. And because the cards are so small, again, this is a physical limitation, because they're small, you can organize them in maybe three different ways, maybe four, not 10, not 20. So uh, author, subject, topic. And so much more convenient for finding things. That's the second order. Separate the physical metadata. In the third order, everything is online. The data, the, you know, the content and the information about that content, everything is digital and online. And that changes the basic principles that we've had for organizing physical things for thousands and thousands of years. So very quickly, I'm going to go through four of these, and then still won't be done. So um, first is that there, the assumption has been, in the physical world, you, a leaf can only go on one branch. It's got to go somewhere, only one place. Online, if you have a, a digital store, if you have a physical store, you're going to put this camera in, in one spot. If it's an online store... You're going to put it into as many categories as you can possibly think of because why not? People will find it. You'll do better. They'll be happier. And Amazon is a master of this. You can go to an Amazon page and just count the different ways that they've organized it. It's, they're, they're really good at it. Um, so actually, Amazon in some ways indicates, uh, represents this point as well. Um, physically, you want a nice, neat arrangement because... Otherwise, you've got entropy going on. You have wasted effort. You don't know where to find things. You're pawing through. Online, you want as much messiness as possible. And that's because you can organize on top of the mess. You're organizing the metadata. You don't have to actually touch the stuff itself. So if you have a, a web post that gets so many links you can't even f follow them, that's a huge success. It's enriched by all of this messiness. The third is... We're very used to, although I guess we don't always think about it this way, but in, in the real world, we're really used to the idea that there's a difference between the content and the information about it, the label and the thing, the metadata and the data. Online, it, when everything's online, that difference disappears. So if you know the name of the author, but you can't remember the name of the book that he wrote, you can search for it. You say, well, okay, I know Herman Melville. What was that book? And you pr press search, and it will tell you. Oh, it's Moby Dick. In fact, when everything is online, uh, and <clears throat> that's happening not as quickly as some of us would like, but it's happening, you get the entire contents of the book back. Not just more information about it, like the title. You get the entire contents back, which means that you can also say, I know something about those. I remember the first line of the content, or you know, a line anywhere. In it, but I remember the first line was, call me Ishmael. What book did that come from, and who wrote it? And you can search on that, and you'll get back the author's name and the contents again. So there's no difference between metadata and data anymore when everything is online. The only difference is that metadata is the thing that you know, and data is the thing you don't know, but you're trying to find out. And this is important because we use metadata as a lever to pry up what we don't know based upon what we do. And if everything now is a lever, then we are way more smarter than we were before everything went online. We have so many more ways of finding what we don't know based upon the little that we do. And the fourth principle that changes is that we're very used to the idea that when we go into a physical store, 
clothing store. You know, the right thing to do would be to just make a big pile of everything that fits you and then start going through it. Because everything else in the store is a distraction. It's noise. It's just in your way. But you'll get thrown out within 90 seconds if you do that, even though it's the right thing to do. If you go online to an online store and it doesn't let you do that, it insists on making you virtually walk past these shelves of things that you don't care about that don't fit, they're for women, you're a man, you'll, you'll leave instantly. The, it used to be that the people who owned the stuff also owned the organization of it, and now that's not true anymore. The people who own the stuff don't own the organization. We own the organization, the users and the customers own it. So which means that we are now making up this is a really fertile, innovative time. We're making up ways in which we can sort through this stuff and find it. And one of them is, uh, so I want to tell you about it, just a couple of them. It may be familiar to you, but I'm, I'm talking really fast. So, uh, <clears throat> First is faceted classification, uh, the essence of which is you take a browsable tree, or a traditional tree where everything's nicely arranged, except you allow the user to browse through it any way she wants. Anything can be the root. Anything can be the next branch. Any other branch can be the next branch. So if you want to, this is... Uh, North Carolina State University. If you want to browse first by region, go ahead. And then browse by subject and then by language, that's fine. But if you want to start only with a language, you want to browse first by Spanish and then by century and then by region, go ahead. That's fine too. So you can browse through a tree, which is a very comfortable and good way of browsing, but you, the user, get to decide exactly what that tree looks like. You can see that now at lots and lots of commercial sites as well. This is Newegg, where if you click on digital cameras, you get the digital camera stuff, of course. But along this side, you get the set of facets that you can browse along next, and you pick. So you say, ah, I'm most interested in pixels. Well, maybe you're most interested in price or maker or uh, type. No, I'm most interested in pixels. It's got to be six megapixels. So you click there, and now it takes you to the next level. And it builds, uh, from, uh, so next by zoom, it builds this path. This is the path through the tree. But it's unlike a normal tree because you can get rid of anything along the way. You can rearrange it any way you want. So it's a very powerful way of browsing if you have lots of stuff. IBM uses this at, um, in, where they have 25,000 consultants in their database and they're trying to pull together teams. And maybe in one case they first want to find people who are located in a particular region and then do it by price because it's price sensitive and then by skill. And so they can browse a tree. Or, next project, the client says, hang the expense. I don't care where they are. All I demand is they speak French. And so that becomes the root of your tree. And then it becomes skill. And then it becomes... The, this fasted classification is sweeping through the net um, for very good reason. In fact, there's a, a company that makes engineering parts. 25 million pieces in their database, and they use faceted classification. And just today, one of the companies doing it, Siderian, announced that they had... They have done with uh, Elsevier a one billion, a, a, a system that has a billion attributes. That's not quite right. It's not a billion attributes. It's a billion RDF triples, but, you know, it, it's way, way big. This stuff apparently scales. So another way that we are trying to pull ourselves together once uh, we lose the, the classification and organization that is given to us by single individuals who are in authority is through tagging, which is familiar to everybody, just about? No. Okay. Um, familiar to many of us. Um, with, this is Delicious, the site that more or less started it off. Um, and Delicious is very simple. It's a bookmarking site where you can, if you come across a page you want to find again, you click and it gets added to your own page. This is somebody named Katrina. Uh, and this is her list of pages on the web that she has bookmarked and wants to keep track of. But when you do that, it asks you to supply a tag, a phrase or two. Actually, it's a single word at Delicious, uh, which is a problem. But nevertheless, a word or two um, so that you'll remember it. So the next time, because you, once you get hundreds of these and you want to find all of them that you tag design, you just click on the design tag over there. Well, there's the tags. Hold on. There. Click on design. And you will see Katrina's page of all the pages she has tagged design. So this is a pretty cool, effective way of remembering places you've been. But it's really interesting because Delicious and many other sites now make this public, make your tags public, which means that you can find all of the pages that Katrina has tagged with design, but you can also find all the pages that anybody at Delicious has tagged with the word design, which is a way of having the world do its research for you. You can see people are finding all this stuff. 
you're doing robotics, you get a really rich selection. You can subscribe to the tag, and every day in your inbox, you'll get the latest pages that people have found. But because we're an insanely social species, we'll also very likely start noticing, as we are looking at our robotics tags or our design tags, that some of the people are really finding interesting stuff, other people delicious, and we'll start to pay attention to them. Maybe we'll visit their page. We'll see their tag cloud, the tags that they're using. We'll get a sense of who they are. Maybe we'll email them. Maybe we'll, we'll get married. It's actually happened. People can fall in love through tags because tags are an expression of what you're interested in and how you think about the world, which is, a pretty, is more fundamental than what movies you like. So tags, work be, uh, tags are intensely practical. Um, and they're being taken up by corporations now because they're a way of having everybody in, in a large uh, spread out or organization share the information that they're finding. You subscribe to the plastics tag at your, if you're at a chemical company and now you see all the pages the Italian subsidiary has found in tag plastic as well. So it's intensely useful but there's something more going on as well. There's a lot of joy in tagging and I think that's in part because it is a way of sticking it to the man. <laughs> it's a way of saying we will classify, we are in charge of what's interesting. We know what's interesting to us. There is we reject your attempt to say, this is the set of categories, these are the things that are interesting. We're going to do that from now on. So doesn't this create chaos? Well, it turns out when you have enough tags, just stick with tagging for a moment. This is Flickr, a site where people post photographs and tag them in public. Um, they have hundreds of millions of tags at Flickr. There's so much data there, in, just in the tag set itself, that they're able to cluster Capri, photos tag Capri into photos of the island or photos of the car without knowing anything about the photos except that the tags they've been using. And it's remarkably precise. In fact, Flickr's favorite example, the PR one they use all the time, is simply by looking at the tags, you can find a set of dog nose, dog nose photos or cat nose photos, divided perfectly, almost perfectly, not on, perfect, not on purpose, but simply by the the statistical relationships among the tags. So when you have enough tags, despite what common sense would say, you don't necessarily end up with chaos. You may end up with actually more meaning and quite precise meaning. Try to find photos of dog noses and cat noses any other way at a site like Google Images, for example. So, oh, this is actually Cass Sunstein who we were talking about earlier. This is a direct relation to him. So th there has been, from the very beginning of the web, 1992, I think, Nicholas Negroponte at MIT first started worrying in public about the daily me. And it was a really important point um, and the right thing to worry about. What Negroponte worried about was, uh, okay, so we all have newspapers. We all read a handful of papers. In Boston, we're basically all reading two papers. This provides a commonality of experience that binds us together as a community. But Negroponte, looking ahead, because he's way smart, said, well, what's going to happen online? What's going to happen is everybody will be getting their own newspaper. What, you know, this will not be like this. It will be just the stuff you're interested in. But when that happens, we lose the commonality, and we get the Daily Me. Well, I would argue that we've had the Daily Me since the Internet began, uh, that anybody who is getting her news through the Internet, as most of us are, many of us are, so that when we get the newspaper, the physical newspaper, it's literally it's yesterday's news, um, with many other interesting sidebars in it, but not real good for news. Um, we're already, we've been getting the Daily Me since we got on the web. It just doesn't look like this. If we're waiting for something that looks like this, it's called the Daily Me and comes in nice borders, that's not happening yet. But we've been, the Daily Me instead, the front page of the Daily Me comes through our inbox where people recommend every day. They say, you got to go see this article. Or it's a mailing list. I'm on mailing lists where I get pointers, with people pointing to and, and contextualizing, discussing articles I would never, ever have found, and they're my main source of information in some areas. So that's part of my, my front page every day. Um, through blogs, which point you to stuff and talk about the stuff, contextualize it. Uh, discussion sites like Slashdot and a million others, depending on your interests. Sites like Dig and Reddit, R-E-D-D-I-T, where anybody who goes there can nominate a, an article uh, to be included, and then vote thumbs up or thumbs down, uh, which determines how far up the page it goes. So here's a communally built, collaboratively built front page. And over time, this will reflect not just the general sense of everybody who goes to dig, but presumably reflect the social networks that we're in as well. So it gets a little more relevant to you. So USA Today, a few weeks ago, actually took the dig idea, 
um, and it's redesigned. So every article you can recommend. Thumbs up. Moves up the page. But they don't have a thumbs down. <coughs> because they're afraid. But they, and they don't understand that we want to be able to say about Justin, the Justin Timberlake gets slimed article. No! No, 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 no! No! I don't want to see that anymore. They only want the happiness. Well, so it's a good step forward, and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. We, are, we already have the daily me. It's the daily us. It's filtered through, in almost every case, these are being filtered through social networks, through social groups, the mailing list, the email. These are people I know or know of, people I admire and I want to hear from. So, and remember how I said that you're going to think I'm done? So it seems to me that we're going from building these trees, very elaborate, carefully thought through, a lot of energy and expertise and value in them, but they're only one representation in each case. Um, to pulling the leaves off and making this gigantic pile that lives by some different rules. And the two basic differences are that in the, in the old way of classifying, there is value in winnowing, filtering, just giving people like only what, because everything else is noise. In the digital world, you want to include everything because we have, alter we, can, we have alternative ways of sorting through it. So the thing that looks to you like trash may turn out to be the Paris Hilton article that you think is just a total waste of time, and you're going to protect your readers from that. Why do they want to read about her boob job? In five years, there's going to be a graduate student who's doing work on the media's treatment of Paris Hilton or on women's images in the year 2007, and she's going to want to see that article, but you excluded it because you decided it wasn't interesting. Well, it's cheaper to include stuff digitally than it is to throw it out, which is why your, your hard drive is filling up with photos you, you've never even looked at. You kill, who has time? It takes more time to sort through it than it does just to keep them. So include everything. And second of all, rather than the structuring ahead of time into neat categories, postpone that moment until the user needs it. Because we'll sort through it based upon our interests at the moment. Categorization always reflects interests. Our interests change. We can now have that dynamically presented. So we, we end up with we will end up very rapidly, we're already getting there, with, with real estate sites, just to take a really cheesy example, that mash up that include everything possible. So all the house listings, the school ratings, the crime reports, uh, Republican and Democratic areas, it's Boston, um, gay-friendly areas, places with lots of Starbucks, if that's what you want, um, Starbucks-free zones. You have to go like five miles offshore. <laughs> um, somebody wants to live near the graveyards because they do gra gravestone rubbings. Somebody wants to live near where there are lots of dog parks. And there's somebody who wants the intersection of both. And there's no reason not to put all that information in there because storage is basically free. And then give us the tools and we'll sort through it the way we want. The more, the better. This is radically different than the job that our knowledge workers and, and editors have had for thousands of years. The pe people, people who create the almanac are not, they want to get as much as will fit in within, into a thousand pages, but their value is in keeping stuff out. Now, as much as you can possibly get in flight paths. Most people don't want to live under a flight path. My old thesis advisor was a plane spotter, and he would sit in his backyard and he would say, oh, there's the 727, it's the 115 from, from Paris. He wanted to live under the flight paths. So not only don't you know what people, what information they're going to want, you don't even know why they're going to want it. So last part, I'm going to be as quick as I can. Three types of implications that come from this, because this is not simply about how we organize things. So one of the consequences of the old way of organizing is that we try to keep things relatively simple, because it's very difficult to, if you had a million-page newspaper, it wouldn't be any good. So a year ago, President Bush gave a talk on immigration in which he did what all presidents and all presidential speechwriters do, which is keep it simple. Complex topic, 2,400 words, gives the talk, good night and God bless. It was a fine talk, as far as that goes. Well, within a couple hours at Technorati, if you, if you look for this, over 2,400 blog posts about it. So it's like one per word. And the bloggers do what bloggers do, which is to find what's complex and interesting in something that looks simple. You sort of look at the bottom of it and you say, did you notice this? That's exactly what these posts did. In every direction, pro, con, uh, that's what bloggers do because that's what we do in conversation. We find what isn't obvious and we state it. We are in a process now of great exhalation, of, 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 uh, of making the world more complex after having to keep it simple in order to be able to organize it. We don't have to keep it simple anymore. And it is an, an enormous relief not to have to keep things simple anymore. 
not to have to have a single opinion about this speech. And all of these are connected, by the way. They're all pointing at each other and arguing with each other more and more over time. Complexity makes us smarter. Second thing that changes is authority. Um, so at Wikipedia, at Wikipedia and, and this is a huge topic, but I'm just going to give say one thing about it. Uh, at Wiki, Wikipedia, there's an article about tomatoes that has a subsection on the pronunciation of tomato because of the Gershwin song, tomato, 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 tomato. And of course, there's then a discussion page about the <laughs> section on the pronunciation of tomato. So... I want to imagine that there are three people who participated in this conversation, and the first is, in fact, the world's greatest expert on the pronunciation. And my example, so just believe me, this is the world's greatest expert, and he wrote the perfect section. He expressed himself perfectly. Got, he nailed it. Next person comes along and says, no, I'm not sure that's right, and so he changed it. First person looks at it and says, huh, greatest expert, changes it back, reverts it. Next person comes along and looks at it and says, no, nah, I can improve it, fixes it up. World's greatest expert looks again, reverts it, reverts it. World's greatest expert says, to hell with this. I am the world's greatest expert. Any change lessens, worsens this section. I am not going to play. I am out, which is perfectly his right. And so he, he leaves with PPD and he writes an angry op-ed for, for USA Today. about. Well, okay, that's fine, perfectly within his right, but what, what this means is that he now increasingly is irrelevant. He may be the world's greatest expert, but who cares? We're not going to hear from him because he refuses to engage in this public negotiation of knowledge, which is what happens, which is what happens when we have so many voices, when the authority that says this is the right answer vanishes and we are left only with each other and we engage with one another. This is how we get to the best truth we can m manage is through, in many instances, is through the public negotiation of knowledge. Now, you can instantly think of counterexamples. You don't really want air traffic controllers and heart surgeons arguing with anonymous people at Wikipedia. That's absolutely right. But we're very, very good as a species at figuring out what type of knowledge we can argue about and what type of knowledge we just have to look up and believe. So I, generally, we don't have to worry about that too much. For the knowledge that's in play, for the knowledge that explains the world and helps us understand it, it's a public negotiation now. And if you're unwilling to engage in it, your knowledge is irrelevant, for better or worse. Also, at Wikipedia, one of the consequences of this, we hope, at its best, is actually illustrated here in Wikipedia by its willingness to put up uh, warnings about the quality of the article. That has tons, oh, that's interesting, tons and tons of them. Hundreds of them. That's over 100 different ways that you can say this article is not right. And the fact that it's willing to do that <laughs> tells us something important. It tells us that Wikipedia is actually on our side. It just wants us to understand the world better. It's not arrogant. It doesn't have to insist. We know and this is the one right way. It's a public negotiation. And sometimes those negotiations don't go well or aren't done. You can imagine what it would take to get a standard authority <laughs> to admit this. This is a very big change in how we think. The fact that the, the willingness to put up announcements about the fallibility of what's there is a real reversal in the nature of authority. And the last point, so now I really am on the last point. Um, I think something really important is going on here. Uh, that's Martin Heidegger, um, who, a philosopher, we'll skip the Nazi part, um, <laughs> real though it is, who wants to know what it means to be a hammer. And I think the answer he gives is essentially right and very relevant here. So he says, do you know what a hammer is? I mean, do you really know what a hammer is? It's not a matter of coming up with the perfect category definition. You've got to know that it's used with nails because that's how we use them. That just is. And if that changes, then, you know. But right now we use them with nails. But to know about nails, you really have to understand wood and how things enter wood, you know, what sort of material it is. You also have to know that it comes from a lumber yard, that it's lumber that comes from trees, that grows in forests, that there's an economic system connecting them, that forests grow under the sun and on the earth. You have to know all that. And that, in fact, to know, for this to be a hammer means for it to be in this context, which mainly is implicit. We don't usually spell these, these things out, but it's there, this context of reference, refer, uh, uh, of significance from one to the other. That's what it means for the hammer to have meaning as a hammer. You need the whole thing, and we have the whole thing. We have it in language and culture and tradition. So, <clears throat> as many have pointed out, 
human beings seem to advance by externalizing functions of consciousness. So writing externalizes memory, and books externalize knowledge, and calculators externalize arithmetic. So what I want to suggest, finally, is that what we're doing now, maybe, is externalizing meaning in Heidegger's sense. The connection of things that enriches them and lets them have the context in which they are what they are. Not their Aristotelian definition, but the richness of their definition, uh, of their meaning. So that's what we're doing. We're, doing. we're connecting up these leaves every possible way we can. Every time we do a public tag, that's available for the next generations to make sense of, to see that there's a connection between these two things that are tagged the same way. Creating straightforward taxonomies of the old sort, really valuable in many instances. We can do as many of them as we want. The semantic web, which has some value. I don't think it's the solution to it all, but it certainly is adding meaning to this collection of, of, of chaotic pieces that we have. Uh, blogs. Everything we post that has a link in it is contextualizing and joining. Um, sites like, uh, I'm sorry, playlists of every sort. I mean, Harvard has its own. It's a playlist for course syllabi. Playlists are really simple, but they're a really powerful way of pulling things together and saying that these things are alike in some way, explicit or not. Sites like Dig and all the different ways now that we're inventing to build our news. Every link, every link we make, no matter where it is, adds semantics, adds meaning to this pile that we are going to be able to mine and make sense of and get art from and, and, and science and business and poetry. And the amazing thing is that it's all ours. This is not being done for us by someone else, no matter how smart, well-intentioned, and wise they are, and we value them. They can do this, too. They can tag stuff. They can make a taxonomy and post it. We can share it. They can create their own Dewey Decimal System if that's what works. They can do whatever. They can add into this, and it becomes ours. This is our meaning. It's our way of understanding the world. It's what's interesting to us, what matters to us, what we care about. We haven't had that ever before, and now we do. Thanks. So there's precious little thank you. There's precious little time for questions because I talked too much. I told you I, I and I, why don't if we can talk about um, content in the few minutes, and I would be delighted to have your style carve it down. This didn't work stuff uh, later. So who's slightly pissed off by this? Oh, Betsy. <laughs> yes, Betsy. I love a lot of what you say, but <clears throat> okay. since I'm married to a college professor, I worry about, I guess I worry about the competition, I, I guess I worry about the experts sort of being commoditized out of, out of the picture. I think you can already see this happening with the great newspapers that are shedding, for example, their science departments, because the, people aren't reading that stuff so much. And, well, and not reading it in the newspapers, yeah. In the newspapers, and a lot of people will be quite content with it. You know, if, if they're footprints, they can do a Google search and find spring eggs. So I guess I'm not as lucid as you, so I think you can infer the rest of my question. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it to you. So I, it's absolutely something to worry about. Um, I'm relatively optimistic that expertise will rise to its own level. So the people who, so you can, yes, so you can point to the people that, who we used to have as experts who are no longer available to us because the economics are changing, the newspaper dropped them. Uh, this, on the other hand, on the other hand, I'm occasionally interested in, in Federal Communication Commission rulings. I am totally not a lawyer. I don't understand most of what they say. I mean, genuinely, I, I, it's gibberish to me. But I care about the Internet, and they're doing rulings, so I want to know about it. The New York Times, which I take as the, you know, the great example, um, never was going to be very good for me. In that regard, they, they cover, I don't know, twice a year, something from the FCC, and then it's one article. Whereas, I'm on mailing lists now. I'm on a couple mailing lists that pay really close attention. Way more than and but occasionally it'll be something I'm interested in, I find the pointer, um, and I go to it, and I find an expert. There are people on the mailing list who are experts who have surfaced who I would never, ever have found. If I hear about a ruling, I go instantly to Susan Crawford's page. I don't, before the internet, I never heard of Susan Crawford, but now I know. It, She's going to, she understands it. She's going to interpret it. In a, oh, I forgot to turn on the... I hope they weren't recording this. I never turned it on. 
She's going to. If you had an expert there, they would have. The expert left the room. Maybe. No, if I were. This isn't our argument not to be a freaking idiot. And that's, you know, a different question. So, um, she, she does far better for me, for my interests. We, we basically agree. I mean, she's within the same. So this is sort of the Cass Sunstein. Am I only listening to people I agree with? Well, yeah, I, I'm more interested in reading Susan because she's also in favor of an open internet. So I trust more and more interested in her interpretation. And also occasionally read up. So there's a whole realm and breadth. David Eisenberg, too, I read him on these topics. I have way more experts at my fingertips and they're talking to one another than I ever had when there were a handful of credentialed experts I could get to in a reliable way by looking them up in the newspaper or in the, in the encyclopedia. So we do lose something. We're losing those credentialed experts who are obvious sort of the tent poles of wisdom. But from the, from the ground up, we're getting so much, so much more. So it's the Walmart I, I, I'm tempted to say no, but I'm not sure what the Walmart ar- argument is. The Walmart argument is that people want cheap, that people want cheap things. So, so yes, you know, yes, Walmart just basically made more money. We were previously made money by selling hardware stores. But on the other hand, the customers want, you know, they well, want to Yeah. Well, except that Susan Crawford is not cheaper than, no, no, right? No, she, no, I, <laughs> I mean, she's a genuine, real expert, right? So. But she's not charging. But she's not charging, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm no good at this. There you go. Yes, I, I think it's exactly right. So, I mean, we can't. Uh, this. Hear you, you know, not hear you, but like, intend to play with that sometimes. Yeah. Uh, play with uh, the Bateson thing? Oh, but that's, you know, that's what we're doing all the time. All, all the time. That's the, the work of, of the Internet, is in fact, or the web in particular, because it's b- built out of links, is exactly to find those connections. And sometimes they're quite orderly. Somebody going through and make, but frequently they're they're wild, and you have to guess. It. Sometimes you have to guess at why these things have been associated. But you have everything. There's more of everything on the internet. There's more. Uh, there's more high-minded discourse that's perfectly sort of Jeffersonian, Jeffersonian and enlightened. And there's more yelling and shouting and name-calling. There's more uh, careful taxonomizing, and there's more linking where you can't even figure figure out why they tagged this thing. DB. What? The, what? Uh, I think in the book that I have an example of somebody who tagged a photo of the front of their fridge with all the you know magnets and stuff. They tagged it Capri. There's no. There's nothing on there about Capri. I, I will never know why. There's more of everything. And the other point about the Bateson thing is that this is being done in public, so no one mind can do this. Absolutely, this is something we have to externalize. But now it's being done in public and with a type of persistence. It's not permanent and eternal because websites go bad, but it's persistent. So you can trace back, and, and it, it's, uh, it accretes. Uh, this, we haven't seen this. What would normally just make you into a gibbering idiot because it's all messed up and miscellaneous in your mind? No. Now, now you have to find your own reason to be a gibbering idiot. <laughs> yes, sir? I was just curious. Um A lot of interdisciplinary research is still kind of considered fringe because Western academia is very much about the segregation of ideas. Therefore, if you want to study history, you only study history. You don't need to worry about psychology. Whereas a lot of people are saying, you know, if you really want to understand historical motivation, you really need to understand some psychology. And so it seems like there's a lot of implications for the type of thing you're talking about with the internet with learning as well. Yeah, you know, th- this is not, uh, this doesn't happen instantly, and it doesn't happen because of the internet. There's, we have a long tradition breaking free of Aristotelian, an Aristotelian view, not only of categorization, but of how the world is ordered. So we've been doing this for a long time. There's a long tradition uh, of, of doing this. Um, there are actually some great quotes from Jefferson about, uh, about what are the natural categories, that there aren't natural categories, something that we make up. There's only individuals. 
Um, so it, likewise, for interdisciplinary studies, this has been happening for a long time because it, it needs to happen. Right? There are reasons why, there are good reasons why disciplines happen. There's some, methodolog some methodologies that can, that you need a lab to do chemistry. So, you know, there's some real concrete reasons why uh, particular disciplines arise. But they've been straining against those, those boundaries. Unfortunately, only able to do it within the confines of, of, of books and other physical media where it's difficult. Now, it's way too easy, if anything. So, yeah. Louis. Um, this is very sweet. I like it a lot. Thank you. I mean, the first place that I found this was when the library catalog went from the card catalog to the digital catalog. And the card catalog was name or subject or title, and that was it. And, but suddenly you could search in end space. But I'm wondering if, if any libraries are, could do what Amazon has done. I mean, why couldn't I now, when I go to the Wagner Library look up a book, see who else has gotten that? You know, see, what people who looked up this book also checked out the following book. <laughs> and you can also uh, sign up to say, OK, you're allowed to release my name. If somebody else in the Harvard community checks out this book, uh, they can find out that um, so we can push the library. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, and that sort of thing is, is happening. Is there a librarian who wants to address that? <laughs> <laughs> Let's increase the number in on these library searches. Pure fear. <laughs> you want a good number? <laughs> because the, the librarians don't do this because they want to make a lot of money. They'd have to be a very, very stupid librarian to enter the field for commercial reasons. Um, they're the purest examples that we have, people who are trying to organize information in ways that help us both find it and, under, and understand it. And so they face an enormous transition. And there, there are pockets. I mean, you're a librarian, so you know this way better than I do. There are pockets, including occasionally the president of, of library associations, who, okay, um, who don't always, who are resistant to this. But by far, the bulk of librarians that I've met are in love with, with what's happening. And the, the huge question is about what to, what to, how to harness it. There are a lot of institutional um, hindrances that librarians struggle against. Uh, University of Pennsylvania allows tagging in their system, for example. Um, actually seems to be a pretty useful system. And the uh, other, other people who have, I, 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 mean, I love that idea. <laughs> Jay, did you want to add? Um, I think maybe one more question because I went on too long. Everything I've seen in the real world says people want to save time and don't want things to be hard. This introduces a lot of complexity. It can be very joyous to go through and you're actually finding out what your own state of mind is about an issue. But it does require a certain level of intelligence and it requires a certain amount of time and sort of the joy of buying into that. It's like a tool where certain kinds of cars. People like, some like the stick shift, yeah. some hate it, and so forth. So we will evolve the tools that we need. Google is uh, um, a fantastic way of locating most information really quickly, where you don't want to, you just want to find out what the capital of North Dakota is, you know, that's Google is your friend. Um, there are lots, <laughs> and likewise, if you go to a uh, commercial site, and they will try to provide both ways. Amazon tries to give both ways, lands and both ways. That is, 
I want a white shirt with blue stripes, and it better be a size 16. And, you know, go directly there. Or eh, I sort of feel like treating myself today and, and browsing. They have to give you both ways. We, will we have lots of reasons to evolve the tools that we need. One is simply commercial. Another is that the, the, sort of the gift economy of the Internet has shown over and over again that it's, it's so large that somebody will invent everything. And they'll do it for free, and they'll work on it for five years for nothing, and it will be an amazing tool. And it may or may not get bought by Yahoo afterwards. <laughs> um, books are for sale. Oh, boy, do I feel like a shill. Books are for sale in the back. It's a $5.99 off. And then um, you can follow people in this direction if you don't know where the Berkman Center is, where there will be uh, there's food and wine, I think. Thank you. Thank you. So,